I've seen much of the rest of the world. It is brutal and cruel and dark. Rome is the light. I'm here with George Mayer and his associate, William Walker. George is a financial services expert. He is a fellow of the Institute of Faculty of Actuaries and a former partner at Tillinghast Tower Parent, the international firm of actuaries and risk management consultants. He had advised clients in the US across Europe the Middle East and the Americas on business risk and profitability. Clients have included the South African Ministry of Finance, whom he advised on potential cost of riots. He was part of a team which ensured the survival of Lloyds of London and the London insurance market. His advice to an Irish government commission led to reforms which substantially reduced deaths on Irish roads. George holds a PhD in the finances of the Roman Empire and, the, and from King's College London, a first class honors BA in classics and MA in classics with distinction from Birkbeck College, University of London. He holds a first class honors BA in special honors mathematics from Trinity College, Dublin, where he was a scholar of the, the foundation. All of this points to George is a smart guy. He is the author of Pugnere, Economic Success and Failure, which uses the Roman Empire as a parable for our times. It was described by the Financial Times as fabulous and essential reading for central bankers. It was also listed by The Week magazine as one of the top 10 business books of 2021. And what George does in his book is he draws uh, parallels as to why Rome actually fell and what is going on in the world today, which are surprisingly very, very similar. So, George, how are you? William, how are you? Very well, thank you. Very well, thanks. And, um, you know, if we would, let's go to this map. These are places where Roman coins have been found. Okay, the, the, the map, um, it, it comes from the uh, Journal of Roman Studies from from, uh, from last year, and it was produced by these excellent scholars, Exeter and, and Manders. Um, and when I saw it uh, in, in, in their article, I, I just thought this is absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Um, and that illustrates um, ex exactly what, what you've been talking about and what's, uh, what's covered in the book. Um, what we have here is a graphical representation of uh, uh, just over 6 million coins wow. uh, that have been found um, in the last um, uh, several centuries um, uh, and are in various museums around the place. And people have gone and they've um, uh, listed all of these, put them into a big database and uh, produced this picture. And this is a picture of a trading network. Um, we think of the Roman Empire, we think of Roman history uh, as uh, army, conquest, and, and, and the like. But uh, what they did um, from the time of uh, Julius Caesar was they transformed themselves uh, from that, you know, acquiring other people's wealth model to uh, generating it themselves. It's like a company going from um, an acquisition strategy to an organic uh, growth strategy. And the picture that we see here of 
many, many, many millions of interactions across a very, very wide uh, geographic area is something that Julius Caesar never experienced. Um, a lot of the infrastructure required for this didn't exist um, in his time. Uh, the harbours, the great harbours around Rome were built about 80 years after his death and then uh, 50 years uh, again after that. And when those harbours were built, uh, there were opportunities for people to send goods out as much as take them in. So harbours were built elsewhere along the North African coast and um, and, and uh, up in London and uh, along the French coast and Spanish coast. But what is what is really beautiful for me in this picture um, is the way it just brings to life uh, things which are normally normally hidden, uh, hidden from our view. So if you look down to India on this map, you'll see coins being found there and they're found on the East Coast and the West Coast and loads of coins uh, being found in Sri Lanka. And, and they didn't just get there by accident. They came there on ships and they didn't they, those weren't ships uh going there for no purpose they were going there for trading purposes if you go up to the arabian peninsula you can see a cluster of coins where dubai is you come down further south you see a cluster of coins um uh, where, uh, where um, aden is nowadays and these are the points where the ships needed to stop off uh to refuel and uh get get um, food on again and the ships going down uh the red sea and ac trading across to india uh, were bigger than anything that would come into uh, the ports at london until the 18th century so they carried uh tons of between two and four hundred um what you would get on an average ship was 300 tons of cargo we hear a lot about the silk road um, but the Silk Road couldn't do what these ships were doing. If you have a camel a train of 50 camels, they'll carry in total about 10 tons. One of these ships carries 300 tons. Um, they, um, there are documents that survive which tell us about how these journeys are financed. These are private um, enterprise uh, traders borrowing from financiers. In one case, the uh, profit from the journey was about $70 million in our terms. Uh, there are itineraries which survive, which tell us about where you as a trader might want to stop off along the journey, uh, what the locals are like, friendly or not friendly, what they have to sell, what they want to buy. Um, the traces of this even turn up in the Bible. Um, we've, we've just um, uh, had Easter and um, Mary Magdalene anoints Christ with, uh, with an ointment called nard. That came from the southern uh, slopes of the Himalayas. And it got to Jerusalem in a series of uh, private enterprise, uh, free trade uh, operations where property law was understood across a wide area and uh, respected. Uh, but the state also benefited from this because when you brought goods into the empire, um, you, were, you paid a customs duty. And in the case of the Indian trade, it was 25%. And that probably helped pay for the harbors and the infrastructure that allowed this trade to occur. Absolutely. And also um, paid for the soldiers who kept law and order within the empire as a police force. Well, I was about to say, when I see all this, I think of the British Empire and the British Empire wouldn't have existed without the, without the Royal Navy keeping the peace on the seas. And I think probably the Roman army at this time, before it got terribly corrupt, did the same thing. Exactly. And, and also the also the um, less talked about 
a Roman navy, uh, which in the time of Pompey cleared the Mediterranean of pirates. There was no piracy in the Mediterranean and uh, no piracy uh, along the Atlantic coast there. So you could trade uh, freely. If you, if you put uh, valuable cargo on a ship, you weren't anxious about pirates taking it uh, from you in uh, at least in the time of, of their peace. Um, another thing, Rob, that's also interesting to me is that when you look at uh, the, this map of coins, particularly in Europe, it extends far beyond the uh, boundary of the empire. So the, the, the northern boundary of the empire pretty well was the Rhine of the Danube. And you can see there's a trading zone where people uh, are using these coins, valuing these coins, is beyond the political limits of the empire. Much the same as the dollar um, is used across the world, way beyond uh, the political limits of the United States. I think um, the Goths, before they were invited into the empire, were actively trading with Rome and somewhat dependent on the Roman economy for their own survival. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But there's something that um, uh, this map can uh, delude us into. So we can think that this is just a, a financial system based on coins. And actually, it's way, way beyond that, uh, way, way beyond that. Because, for example, um, until AD 250, shipwrecks found in the Mediterranean have scarcely any coins on them. After AD 250, when the financial system had collapsed, you find industrial quantities of coins. And the reason for that is that before then, before AD 250, they had a beautifully functioning banking system um, using bills of trade, which effectively uh, functioned as banknotes. So promissory notes, payable on demand, which are transferable. Um, in, uh, in the time of Nero, uh, uh, one rich senator called uh, Seneca had business in London. He lent money to people in London. He lent in total, in our terms, about $250 million. And he didn't do that by shipping over it, large quantities of coins. He did it through, um, through transfers in the banking system. Yeah, what, what we call today commercial paper. Absolutely, totally, um, precisely. Bills of lading. Um, I mean, we think about how sophisticated our economy is now with with uh, electronic transfers and things of that nature, but this is much the same, and it was 2,000 years ago. I mean, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And in, in the city of London, there is a building, it's called the Bloomberg Centre, and uh, in its basement, there's a wonderfully preserved uh, Roman temple, which is called the uh, Temple of Mithras. And there's a large display case uh, nearby, which shows uh, some of the stuff discovered in the recent excavations when that building was being built. And one of them is exactly this. It's exactly a promissory note with a face value in our terms of $4,000, payable on demand, which is transferable. And it uses exactly the same words as a similar contract uh, would do in Rome or anywhere else in this trading empire. And it's enforceable. The parallels that one might be able to draw is trade is natural in, in human beings. Yes. Um, we want to better ourselves, but in order to have an effective trade system, you have to have um, order. Yes. Um, and you, all, you have to have 
what I would call the rule of law. Yes. And and in an intense protection of property rights. Yes. Um, and once you have that, it's almost inevitable that that human societies will create these sophisticated networks with bills of ladings and and you know promissory notes and banking centers around the world that will facilitate trade um but it's just absolutely remarkable that this existed um yeah, up until i don't know um 300 a.d or so uh, before it started to fall apart or maybe a little sooner uh, and we didn't see this type of um economic economic complexity and wealth creation until i believe you mentioned uh, when we were talking a little while ago until about 1816 and what what's the significance of 18 I'm 18, 18 1816 is when um uh, britain finally uh discovers how to make a currency based on a gold coin uh, a silver coin and a copper coin work um, because if you have these three um, coins two precious metals and one base metal uh, there is always the risk that uh, someone will figure out that you're undervaluing gold or undervaluing silver and they'll exploit it. And in the case of uh, Britain uh, through the 18th century and the 17th century, depending how the price varied, coins would leave circulation and go to rival mints uh, on the continent. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was a big intellectual puzzle. And people like Isaac Newton uh, who was the master of the mint at one stage, tried to solve it. And it wasn't until 1816 that they discovered how to solve it. And by 1833, it was fully implemented. And it wasn't until 1873 in the United States uh, that the same uh, developments happened. Um, and it was um, the foundation of Britain's commercial success, the fact that it had a robust, uh, strong currency. That the Sound. Romans had had until um, AD two fifty or thereabouts. Sound as a pound, and um, you can see what happened with Bretton Woods um, and the devaluation of the dollar. <laughs> uh, luckily, we haven't imploded because of that. But the importance of a sound, secure, and stable monetary si system is obviously what promotes this type of trade. Um, and, you know, we talked a little earlier about, um, you know, there's always this PC world we have to hear about uh, servitude and, and slavery and things of that nature. But by the time of 1816 came around is kind of when the British led the world in um, eradicating slavery. Um, but it couldn't have been eradicated without a means of pr production to lift people out of the centuries of feudalism we had before. And, um, and this type of trade resulted in incredible prosperity and a monetary system where all of a sudden you could pay people to do labor instead of, um, 
um, and they could advance themselves, give themselves uh, dignity and be part of the um, great democratic e experiment of liberty. Um, so this type of um, what I would call stable financial system, extensive trade, protection of property rights, lifts people out of despair. Um, it's more than just the creation of wealth, but it, it has also created unknown liberties for those who participate in the system. Um, and I, I think it's something, I think George's work is so important because we have a tendency to overlook history and things that have worked. And this map in George's book, Pugnary, if anything, it shows what works and what doesn't work. When, um, when, they, when the Romans annexed, um, annexed Egypt, uh, they uh, acquired all the treasures of Egypt, all the gold that had been um, made into statues and this, that, and the other, um, that had been acquired by them over centuries. And what the Romans did with it under the leadership of Augustus uh, was they brought it back to Rome and they made it into coins and they spent money uh, on infrastructure and they spent money on restoring the city and things like that so it's it's what you do with the treasure and in their case it it was used to increase the money supply and then use that money supply for economic well-being to create stuff that would last for hundred hundreds of years such as roads and to give employment to people. Right. Um, so I, I, I wonder whether if we looked more deeply into what Britain did and what Spain did, we might find that Britain used it for commerce and Spain used it for the adornment of things. Right, right, I, I think you're right there. For me, this I'm, 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 I hope I'm not spending too much time on it, but for me, this, this, this picture just says so much. And, and for me, I put it in the context of those two dates, 1816 for Britain, you know, after more than a century of efforts, which involved Isaac Newton, eventually figures out how to uh, recreate the currency. Right. And then 1873 in the United States. Back when um, the added sound as a pound was in common circulation. Yes, yes. You know, I've recently, I've always kind of listening or reading, uh, as I mentioned, about the Napoleonic Wars. Hmm. And, um, you know, Britain did so well during that age mm. because of its economy and its banking system. Yeah. I mean, they were so wealthy, they could um, pay other, other principalities um, off um, uh, to keep from having to fight them. Sure. Very clever, though. I'm kind of addicted to my phone and I scroll it while I'm drinking coffee in the morning. And, um, you know, I subscribe to, well, I get these feeds of, um, I like ancient history and the mysteries of the ancient world. You get these, you know, things that pop up in your mailbox, but I have read, and I don't know whether there's any validity to it, but that Roman coins um, have been found in South America. Have you heard that? No, I, I haven't. Heard I that. I read that article no. too, uh, 
I, 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 was I, I think they might might have been lost by a tourist. I, I, there were, there were quite a few, yeah. I, there was there was another. I don't know if it was in the same article, but there was a reference to a, a Roman figurine that had been found in some Viking uh, uh, like Viking grave in Iceland or something. But um, but yeah, I did. I read about the 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 coins that were discovered in there was some in South America but I, I was a bit I was a bit skeptical <laughs> but um yeah, I think it may have been some sort of pottery as well that was distinct yeah that's right there was something in something in South America and there's something in Mexico but what I but there are actually uh there are written accounts I was reading them on Wikipedia the other night um about a, a tradesman who i think he wrote in i think he had a diary written in greek um and he was just he wrote a bit of a just a journal describing a book just describing the different ports all the way down uh is this the gulf of arabia like just as you go the red sea, the, the red sea and then as you come around and then and he he also described some of the ports on the uh, on the western coast of India and and like what they were. He just raised about what they were like, what the people were like, what you could buy there. Um, but they were they were interesting. It, it was fascinating. Um, in the, in the Bible, Mary Mary Magdalene anoints uh, Jesus with um, uh, an ointment called nard. Um, and that comes from a honeysuckle plant that grows on the southern uh, slopes of the Himalayas. Oh, really? So, so private private trade and lots of uh, people in the chain took it from there all the way up to uh, Jerusalem. And also, I mean, this is slightly not not to do with the Romans, but the, the reason that the Virgin Mary is often depicted as being being blue uh, in in church is because. Uh, of lapis lazuli uh, or lapis lazuli, uh, which was mined from uh, a mine in Afghanistan, and before that, before this arrived in Venice, they'd never really been able to get a very vibrant blue colour before. And using, they refined the process over uh, over several centuries, but they were able to, for the first time, using this stone lapis they were able to get the this very vibrant blue color and that was why it became very valuable more valuable than gold and that was and the the church decreed that it could only be used by the church and that was why they used it for uh the the virgin mary why she's blue this idea of world trade and years ago i read this book undaunted courage which is about the lewis and clark expedition yeah. across america 1803 1805 and when they got to the continental divide um they met in, they met indians who one of which was wearing a, like a british pea jacket that belonged to a sailor and it just shows you that that this trading occurs naturally among among human beings and um and geographically it spreads. So you can't assume that a good that you found um, in, in Stockholm, an archeologist found, uh, originated there. It could have originated almost anywhere in the world. 
And I think when you look at um, some of these Anglo-Saxon archaeological digs in Britain, um, some of the goods they find in these graves come from places thousands of miles away originally. In an era where you didn't, we, I don't know, it's, we assume it was the dark ages and, and it, they had a very closed economy, but apparently it wasn't as enclosed as, you know, we tend to believe. Um, and, and, and things can move very far if, if you've got a succession of deals. So right. I, I sell something to you and um, you go off several miles, you sell it to someone else because you knew they wanted it. And then it goes from there to somewhere else. Yeah. And that's, you know, all of this trade has much to do with the assimilation of of cultures kind of try, you know, finding a a common mechanism um, and adopting principles, not just eco economic, but maybe social mores and other things that work. I mean, trade facilitates a lot of good things besides just just economic wealth. Because essentially, it's it's cooperation. So if I'm trading with you, um, we're both cooperating. We both need to understand each other. Voluntary transactions instead of uh, mandatory. Instead of me coming and taking the money from you. Right. Why that was also one of the explanations as to why the the Egyptian Empire fell is that it, it survived the. It was the, the sea people. It was one of the few empires to survive in the Western Mediterranean to survive this, the, the, the attack of the sea people. Um, it were kind of migrating hordes uh, who kind of toppled a lot of the, the Bronze Age civilizations. Um, the Philistines, correct? Uh, that's, that's right. They went on. They, that was one of the groups that kind of made up this kind of melange of people that had been dislodged because of, I think they just thought that it was uh it's kind of seasonal uh, kind of climate changes that had um disrupted these populations but the the egyptians were actually able to fend them off but it was kind of redundant because the other civilizations in the western in the western mediterranean weren't able to they were toppled and the egyptians relied upon them to trade with um uh, you know they they had produce and, and resources that they needed um, and as a result, those trade routes dried up, and it eventually spelled the the decline of the of the Egyptians. Well, George, you have an opportunity to uh, promote world peace in the sense that yeah. if people really understand the importance of trade, yes. there's no reason to go to war. Um, I mean, we we see Xi Jinping uh, right now circling Taiwan and, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's no reason. No one gains by that. But if we have free and voluntary trade with the protection of private property, both nations prosper. And to the degree that we're prospering off of one another by creating wealth, there's no reason to kill each other. And <laughs> have you ever done any work on World War One? World um, War One. World War One. Well, it just seems to me that Germany and England 
they had these mercantile systems um, and they um, the idea that the Germans and the British, who were the most sophisticated people on earth at the time, should fight each other over what? When they can trade with each other and everybody be happy. Um, it seems to me that uh, people misplace the importance of, of connecting economies together through trade um, and um, thinking that some sort of territorial ambition, because everybody wants wealth, is the way to wealth. And really the way to wealth is through, uh, through trade and certain economic uh, principles that like um, the protection of private contracts, the rule of law, protection of private property, everybody prospers. I I I think I think uh, I, I think I agree with a lot of what you say, but one except for one bit, what you say about private property is is absolutely absolutely right, and and one of the reasons this this thing worked was because um, they understood and enforced um, uh, property rights, private property rights. Um, I think um, I think this little island of Britain. Um, understands very much what you're saying, you know, the, the importance of peace and relationships for trade, and then what you get from trade. The only thing I would say on the other side is that um, trade rewards talent. So trade will reward the deal spotter, it will reward the man who uh, understands relationships. Um, trade is a competitive game. It rewards those who are comfortable in a competitive sphere, those who can survive, and and there will be losers. And you know, I think um, a country like Britain um, is very, very comfortable with trade. It's a maritime country; that's what it does. The United States is very comfortable with trade. Um, parts of India, maybe a lot of India, yes. Whether China is, I don't know. And maybe if you were to bring China into this wonderful paradise of free trade. You might actually be bringing them into an area where they're uncomfortable and not very strong. Now that's a guess because I don't understand China that well. So I I, I agree with what you're saying with with that uh, possible caveat. Yeah, it's just um, your work. I think is so important uh, for people to understand good public policy, and it's just not economic policy, but it's has to do with international relations and and keeping the peace. Look what the Royal Navy, getting back to the Royal Navy, look what they did for the world. I mean, you look at all the colonies of Britain and the civilization that Britain brought them and the trade and the wealth that was created at that time. And when a lot of these places have been disconnected from Britain, the Bank of England and, um, and you know, these trading routes and part of a what would you call Britain? We call ours a democratic republic, but <laughs> part of a um, a nation of um, democratic institutions, um, there's wealth. And when you become disconnected with that, there's not. Um, and I think when you go, when you look at Britain as opposed to France, you know, the Napoleonic Code, um, you go back to Alfred the Great and there were actual deeds where somebody had a legal instrument where they owned that land 
Yes. And that land was a bundle of sticks. And um, those sticks were property rights that were protected. And I think that's why the Anglo-American world um, has an advantage because of our legal systems that protect okay. property. So ab absolutely, totally, absolutely, totally. I think I think also from, from um, in, in Britain, I think they have um, a, a very deep, deep, deep um, uh, understanding of the importance of order and stability. So it's not to be stasis, it's not to be no change, but for things to happen in a stable way. And, and you need that for, for trade to, and uh, to happen and all the rest. The French, for example, in their psyche, don't have that understanding. Their foundation myth is, is disruption. Right. Storm the Bastille and cut people's heads off. Um, and it works. And it works. Whereas that's not the British one. Well, it's, I don't know. Again, it gets back to the national mindset in that um, Brits and Americans, you know, we all, we're all come from the the anglican culture we queue in line for a bus it's just natural it's natural order and um you know there are our countries where everybody just will scramble and push each other out of the way it's just it is a different mindset but um i do think that your work um, people understanding a strong monetary system protection of private property and trade is what lifts the world out of despair. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it needs to be protected and understood. So many people don't understood, don't understand anything about economics. And um, but what makes capitalism work, what creates wealth are not mandates from the government such as the Obamacare health bill, which says you have to buy this. It's voluntary transactions where people vote with their money, their property. And that's what, and you don't need government for that. Um, um, government is jealous because you don't need them, but that's what creates wealth and happiness. Y'all wanted to talk about the banking crisis in Silicon Valley and <laughs> I'm interested to hear y'all's take on that. I, I can speak to that point. I don't. Um, I I don't have a uh, religion uh, on inflation, so I don't say that I belong to the religion of the monetarists or the religion of the Keynesians or the whatever or whatever. The way I I look at it uh, pragmatically, I look at it uh, like you might look at a business which is that in certain circumstances, if you do this, this will happen. But in other circumstances, if you do that, something less will happen. Or if this force is pushing this way and that force is pushing that way, uh, then they'll counteract each other to an extent and it'll maybe go like that. So I think that if someone tells me that uh, there's an increase in productivity and, uh, um, um, and, and so on, that that's having one effect, that there's a disruption to the supply chain, it's having that effect, all of that will make sense to me. Um, where where I um, where I think the system goes wrong is if people um, start to get a religion on it. So if I take the Bank of England for example at the moment, and I think they're doing a lot of great things in a lot of great they they've lot of, they work in a lot of areas, but in um, in their view of what's happening on inflation, they basically completely rule out any possible um, impact that the increase in money supply has had. 
So they uh, went through a process of quantitative easing. They increased bank reserves, which fed directly out into the population. And the average uh, uh, bank deposit in this country is up by 20%. And that is up by 20%. On average, people have 20% more money in the bank than before the pandemic. And as far as they are concerned, this has no effect whatsoever upon inflation. It has no explanatory power. And that is, um, that's groupthink or it's a form of madness to me. So that, <laughs> whatever it is, but it, um, it, there's something, there's something um, at the moment it hasn't done us any great damage beyond delivering uh, um, aggregate inflation that would be about 20% to us. It Did you say 20%? I think the inf I I, um, I think in um, inflation um, when you add it up since the beginning of the pandemic in this country will total twenty uh, percent. Wow! So, seriously, ten percent um, last year, ten percent this year, and then oh. yeah, prices are up twenty percent since two thousand nineteen or two thousand. Yeah, in total. Yeah, which is which which has some relationship to the increase in the um, money supply. Right, right. I can yeah. see circumstances where you increase the money supply um, and it doesn't increase prices. If you increase the money supply by 20% and the economy is actually physically growing by 20%, you don't get prices go up by 20%. They need the extra money. Right, right. And do you think the banks are sound in Britain? I think um, um, British banks, um, are the, uh, to the extent that it matters, um, are sound. Um, and I think they are sound because of one of the things that was done after the uh, crisis in 2008 and 9, which wasn't done in other countries um, and was um, got a lot of political pushback, but happened and was very, very difficult for the banks to do. It was it was a Herculean effort. Um, and that's ring fencing. And one of the um, deputy governors of the Bank of England um, said at one stage, I think it was about two years ago, that he would fight to the last drop of his blood to defend ring fencing. And that's an extraordinary thing for a person to say, but he had lived through the crisis. And what they did was they took banks like Barclays and they uh, basically split them into two. And all of the retail business, all of the small, um, uh, small business, uh, business uh, mortgages goes into one bank and no risky gambling stuff can go in there. Um, and so you split Lloyd's like that. And then these ring-fenced entities, um, you know, there's less risk in them, so that's good. Um, but most importantly, if anything goes wrong with them, they're of a size that the state um, can protect. They don't overwhelm the state. If you have all of that mixed in with the gambling stuff and you have to rescue the whole lot, the state couldn't protect the whole lot. And, and that, I think, has made it extremely sound. Well, yeah, that's um, that's and that's one of the things they've done superbly well in this country. Yeah, that's you know we've had that so many times here with um, back in the nineties was called the savings and loan yes, crisis. Yes, yes. And what the government allowed to happen was they socialized the risk, and when you socialize the risk, uh, banks take oh. extraordinary gambles. Exactly, and. Um, it's just again everything goes back to human nature and understanding Absolutely. what drives us and you know we are creatures um with 
I always use the duality of man as a good example. Um, but, you know, we're capable of great good and great and great evil. And it's all the way we are wired. Mm -hmm. And um, just about every time there's a new policy proposed in Washington, you analyze it not by matrices and statistics. You analyze it by how are human beings going to behave in the face of this new policy. Um, I, my, my, pretty my, predictable. My, yeah, my, my 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 training, my training is actuarial, so it's in it's in the numbers. And then you go and you uh, advise a company in 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 Lloyd's uh, in Germany, France, the Middle East, or wherever, and you end up saying the numbers are very important. I must understand the most important number, whatever that is. But it's basically human nature. Right human nature that will make this uh, organization thrive or that will kill it. And you just see it then multiple times. Right. And, um, you know, um, it's always the case. Um, there's always corruption. Um, I believe in all the tenets of traditional Christianity. But, uh, but is the church corrupt? And generally, I say yes, uh, no matter what denomination you are, or whether you're Catholic or Protestant, when human beings are together and they have a certain amount of power um, um, and they're insulated, um, there will be problems, <laughs> even in the best of institutions. And I think that's one of the things that people don't recognize in public policy either, is that human beings, um, well, I would say we're all corruptible. <laughs> Some of us are corrupt, but all of us are corruptible. <laughs> and if you design your policy such to protect people against themselves, they're better policies. I think as, as SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank in um, in the U.S. kind of illustrates that, you know, get, get, you know, they're getting a flood of deposits in more than they can actually um, lend out. So they say to themselves, well, we can get a better return by buying long, uh, long government bonds. And then instead someone... of doing what they're supposed to do and lend the money. And, and also, there must have been someone in their organization who said to them, well, yes, at the moment, we get a better return on these long government bonds, but someday the interest rates will go up. And on that day, we will have a massive capital loss. It is inevitable that we will lose. So what we have is we have a slightly better return today and tomorrow and the day after, but there will come a day when the interest rates go up, and then we will lose a massive amount of capital. And then they went and did it. Well, I don't understand it was hmm? how they could have done that in the sense that uh, when when interest rates are practically at zero, they're going to go up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, what I um, when I look at that, I look at basic, you know, what's the cause of that? And one of the underlying causes, I think, maybe the underlying cause is basically you have children in in Silicon Valley in the sense that uh, they're almost childlike in the sense that they things have been so good for so long 
they're a pampered class. There's so much money flowing around there. Um, many of the people have not had to deal with any hardships at all. Things have come so easily. They just haven't had the, the experience of hard knocks and going through some of the troubles in life that most all of us have, and they're living in a fantasy land. Welcome to a day in my life as a Twitter employee. So this past week went to SF for the first time at a Twitter office, badged in, honestly took a moment to just soak everything in. What a blessing. Also started my morning off with an iced matcha from the perch. Then I had a meeting, so quickly scheduled one of these little pod rooms, which were so cool. They're literally noise canceling. Took my meeting, got ready for bunch. Look how delicious this food looks. Oh my goodness. I was so overwhelmed. Then made my way down to this log cabin area. I don't know what this is, but it was really cool. Played some foosball with my friends to kind of unwind a bit. Um, also found this really cool meditation room that I thought was super neat. Um, I didn't do any yoga, but they have this yoga room if you were a yogi, so also thought that was really cool. Um, had a couple more meetings in the afternoon, had a ton of projects that we needed to knock out. Say hi to my teammates. Um, <laughs> went to the went to the library to kind of get some more work done. Obviously had to have our afternoon coffee, so made some espresso. And then before leaving for the day, had some red wine um, that's on tap went up to the rooftop and just honestly enjoyed the beautiful weather. I um, I uh, would agree with um, all of that, the hard knocks, the experience, the lack of. Um, um, the, the bit I disagree about is, uh, is, is if we were to say that is just Silicon Valley, because that happens elsewhere. I mean, the set of behaviors that I see in Silicon Valley Bank are the same as I uh, saw at Lloyd Syndicates, which nearly brought the thing down. Right, right. It's, it's not to do with long government bonds, but the same thing. You know, we could get into a dis discussion of how society has changed from one of personal responsibility to, well, one of lack of responsibility. <laughs> People haven't had to experience the hard knocks, which generally is um, somewhat of a transformation and transformational events for for societies that kind of keep them checked and balanced so, so george do you think that's the main uh, kind of parallel that we can take is that that sense of complacency that you know it was complacency that undermined the roman economy that people had had it so good for so long they didn't think the system that it, it could break that's i mean that 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 that, that is the view that i've i've taken for a long time there was complacency that did it. There was complacency that um, allowed them to uh, put in rulers that weren't um, uh, protecting what you know what they what needed to be protected. That they had kind of assumed that this whole financial system was just was there. You couldn't mess it up. Um, it, it was just a um, things had been so good for so long. So I, I I think it's complacency. Then the mistakes happen. Then the economy collapses. And then you get barbarian invasions, you get defeats in the Middle East and everything. The ruling class of the emperors in the sense that when I look at the United States now, 
I see a corrupt ruling class that all their exp experience has been political and influence peddling um, to ingratiate themselves at the extent at the expense of the public wheel. Mm -hmm. um, there just doesn't. I mean, I'm a cheapskate, a thrifty. <laughs> I have Scott's blood in me. So I am, uh, if I was in a position of power, I would feel a fiduciary obligation to be thrifty, um, parsimonious, because I've lived through um, events that tell me that that would be my responsibility. But our political class seems to short, shirk any kind of fiduciary obligation um, to um, maintain and preserve um, the structures um, of our economy and democratic institutions for that matter. It's kind of what I deem as presentism and the ends justify the means. It's like they have no historical perspective that you know the anglo-american world is what's created all the wealth and it's there's a reason it has and we need to preserve those institutions it's it's um it's living for today and not thinking about tomorrow now i'm wondering if one could say that for some reason that's the way the um the roman the roman emperors thought you know the days of the republic i think they probably did think that way the way you've described their parsimonious way um um understanding where they came from valuing the work of their predecessors all that sort of stuff yeah I think very, so. very 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 much so and then um th then you could say that around about AD 150 you know plus or minus a decade or so um uh, they're very clearly losing it they're no longer building right and uh, there was so much um conflict to uh, jockeying to be the emperor absolutely and what what they did um fr from uh, the middle of the first century on for about a hundred years is they got rid of that jockeying by making sure that the successor of the emperor was known in the lifetime of the emperor right. so he adopted as his son someone who was acceptable to the people and the senate so you have a smooth transition of power um, and you remove the jockeying and once you get into the jockeying then exactly what you say happens and then and and that that is at its worst in AD 193 when the, when there's civil war jockeying and the way they uh try and get power is by bribing the soldiers and then a fellow called Septimius Severus doubles the pay of the soldiers um and that gets him the position um, and that um, starts the smashing up of the state finances. Right, with the army behind you, you have power. But, but, but before that, they had maintained the balance. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, at least here in the United States, um, we're seeing that today. The weaponization of our government, losing what one would call the old republic values. Sure. Uh, it's all about self and not country. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with our 
our political class has never been involved in business. A lot of them have not. So um, how the book sales? They're doing well. They're doing well, and it's 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 going out into uh, into into a nice uh, variety of areas as well. Yeah, Cla classics and um, and and business and politics, which is you know and, and very 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 pleasing. Are you? I don't have a lot of faith in universities these days. <laughs> but if I was, um, if I ran a university, uh, this book would be in Western civilization classes and things of that nature. Are you having any luck introducing it to academia? Um, it, it, slowly, and I wanted it. Uh, I wanted that part of the process to be slow, very. Um, very very purposefully because um you, you need just because of how at least academic uh, the academic world is structured here um and you know it's 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 starting to move there so i i gave a um a lecture at fordham's london campus um the week before last and it went well it went very well okay yeah your main thesis here is really the foundation of um the history of the world in the sense that it's it's endemic to the human being to want to trade yes. and that trade lifts people up yes. and if you can trade under the same principles that the roman empire did when it was successful and what britain did mm -hmm. um you will create wealth and happiness i mean that's kind of in a nutshell why this is important sure yeah so do you have an opportunity to make the world happy how about that <laughs> well this has been extremely interesting i appreciate y'all's time and i think people who might watch this podcast should uh, where can they find your book um it can be found um, um on any, any anywhere online in the united states so it can be found on amazon and so on okay um, but enjoy talking to y'all. <laughs> great to talk to you again, my friend. Yeah. Thanks very much, Rob. Nice. Thanks. Thank you. Bye bye.